0: Our God and our Father, we come to you in such need still of learning what it means to be and to live as disciples, as growing and fruitful disciples. Thank you for the rich examples we have of how your son trained the twelve. Help us to hear and to heed from that training today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we return to Matthew today and to three little vignettes. I wonder, did you read those? And did you try to see how they connect to each other? And how did that go? Because I think it's very challenging, very, very challenging. In fact, some commentators simply say that they don't have any connection, but I think they do, and I'll bring out to you what I see here. To understand how, and we could have maybe just preached the one, but that would leave the other two hanging. If we preach the first two, that would leave the third hanging. They really do go all together. To understand how they go together, we need to remember what has shifted in Jesus' ministry. In the first part of his ministry, as we see it in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' focus was on a full court press to the nation of Israel and to Israel alone, not into the way of the Gentiles. And he was concerned with presenting his credentials, showing who he was and what he could do. His person, his power, and uh, for that matter, his um, uh, ancestry. ancestry. Uh, his fitness to be the Messiah and the King of Israel. That was what he was about. That's what his disciples were about. But as we saw that nation and that generation rejected Jesus and rejected his claims. We see that coming to a Climax in chapters 11 and 12, where we hear a lot about that generation and those people and those cities uh, through that chapter. Just to read you a few, to remind you, in chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus asks, To what shall I compare this generation And then he says they're like children who if you won't play their game, they won't listen to you. And so John the Baptist and Jesus wouldn't play their game, so they rejected them. Same chapter, verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Why? Because they didn't repent. Most of the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Chapter 12 has a number of such things. Chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and none will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Same chapter, verses 41 and 42, he says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation in the judgment and will condemn it. Verse 42, the queen of the south will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Same chapter, verse 45, after the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where the religious leadership of Israel said, ah, we know how he gets these uh, supernatural powers. They come from Satan. They come from Beelzebub. And Jesus said that was the unpardonable sin, attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Satan. And then he tells this parable, the parable of the, uh, the man who has a demon that just leaves him for no stated reason. And when he comes back, he finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And so he gets seven worse demons and comes back and inhabits that house. And Jesus says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Having rejected the Lord, they left themselves wide open to the influence of Satan. Chapter 16, verse 4, just as a last one. These are not all of them, but he had just said in the previous chapter, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, I think those things are very important, or I would have would not have taken the time to give you those references. Seeing how Jesus characterizes that generation. Now, that being the case, then, in chapter 16, he asks his disciples who They think he is. Peter confesses that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? He blesses that statement and says that on that truth, he's going to build his church. This is a new agenda and a new focus. Now he's going to build his church on the confession of his divine messiahship. And from then on, the focus shifts to Jesus preparing to build his church. And that involves what we call the passion his death, burial, resurrection, and it involves the training of the leaders of that church. So that becomes the focus of these. And you know towards the end of the chapter, he announces his passion. Peter responds by rebuking him. Jesus calls him Satan and rebukes him back and tells him to get back behind him, following him as a disciple in faith. And then... He takes them up into the Mount of Transfiguration at the start of chapter 17. That's what immediately precedes what we're talking about right here. This is what happens right after they come down from three men, Peter, James, John, seeing Jesus, just a glimpse of His divine and kingly glory. In glory with Elijah the prophet and Moses the lawgiver, with God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, what? Listen to Him. So then they come down from the mountain to this. Now, that sets us up for, I think, seeing how these stories tie together. They all have to do with dimensions of faith. They all have to do with preparing these men to lead in Jesus' absence. So let's go through it together and see how that is. Roman numeral 1, then. The first story shows the need for faith. The need for faith, if one is to be a disciple and a leader, Matthew greets us, first of all, then, with the external issues in verses 14 through 18. What was their problem? Verse 14, and when they came up to the crowd, so they've come down from the mountain, and here's a crowd. Mark tells us, this is important, it's helpful, Mark tells us that the scribes were in that crowd, and they were arguing, and there's just a big mess and chaos. That's what greets them after this literal mountaintop experience. They come down to this, and a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, "Lord." Show my son mercy, because he has seizures and is suffering badly. For many times he falls into the fire and many times into the water. And I brought him to disciples, and yet they were not able to heal him. So here's Jesus and his inner three coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're greeted with a father's misery and the nine's inability. The father's misery... Uh, He's in an absolutely desperate place. His son, who is evidently not a young child from his youth, has been suffering from this demonization that that affects him, and the Father's found no cure for him, but he's heard of what the disciples, of what Jesus and his disciples can do. So in desperation, he brings the Son to them. Uh, Perhaps he's heard of the great miracles they do, healing the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed, even raising the dead. And so he brings his Son to them. Ah, but he is met with failure. What is it that his son is afflicted with? You may have a translation that says epilepsy. I'd like to say I think that's a mistake. Uh, the verb is seleniazomai, uh, which is related to the word for moon. That's why the, fo- the footnote says it means moonstruck. Actually, the ancients were, uh, were familiar with epilepsy. And there were a couple of words for epilepsy, but this is not one of those words. In fact, our word epilepsy is just based on the Greek word epilepsia, which was used by Hippocrates. You've heard that name. He was a physician five centuries before Christ. So if this had been epilepsy, Matthew would have used more likely another word, this is not the word used for epilepsy. It's a popular word. It means moonstruck, but that's not a medical diagnosis, you know. When we say somebody has a cold, do we mean that person's colder than other, more than other people? And No, we don't. Sometimes they feel warmer than other people. Or when we say that someone's a lunatic, do we really literally mean that person's moonstruck? Because that's what that word means. No, these are just popular words, and so was this. This was something where obviously the son had seizures, but the cause was not the cause of epilepsy. The cause was demon possession because Jesus heals him by casting out a demon. So that's the issue here. And it would be a terrible mistake to think that this means that epileptic epileptic people are demon possessed or to look at people who have seizures as being demon-possessed. Epilepsy is a, is a function of the brain. Uh, it's not a matter of demon possession. This is not that. There have been some tragic situations by people who wrongly diagnose epileptics as being possessed and wrongly treat them. I, I've read of one death arising from that. So let me make very, be very clear. This is not epilepsy. This is demon possession. And you hear the Father's heart here. Look again at His words show my son mercy. First he says, Lord, recognizing Jesus' authority. Most non-disciples call him teacher, I believe, but he calls him Lord. And he says, show my son mercy. This is the, the common appeal to Jesus. And it's what Jesus often spoke of, the need to show mercy. And so he appeals to Jesus for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is showing, giving help to someone in a miserable situation. Well, is his son in a miserable situation? The father goes on to say, Show my son mercy because he has seizures. It's, a, it's an ongoing thing. And in fact, it happens frequently. But beyond that, he says he's suffering badly. Now, there's a father's heart for you. How it tears a father up to see his child suffer. And he sees his child suffering, but not just suffering, suffering badly. He has seizures by fires and falls into the fire and has to be fished out because he's incapable of bringing himself out. He has seizures by water and falls into the water and has to be fished out because he's incapable of fishing himself out. And this has torn this man's heart up. And he's brought his son to the disciples. I brought him to your disciples. Verse 16 And yet they were not able to heal him. Now, it's important to note, and I'll do my best to remember to say why later, it's important to note that the word able is a very common word that literally means they didn't have the power to heal him. It wasn't in their power to heal him. It wasn't in their ability to heal him. And uh, before we uh, we move on, it would also be worth noting, as as Bishop J.C. Ryle notes at length, that Satan has here targeted a, a child. And we should not think that children are beyond the wiles of the devil. And this is, a, this is a young man perhaps, but you don't think of children as being uh, innocent and exempt until they become 21 and then they can make responsible decisions. I'm, I can certainly tell you as a pastor that I've seen over the many years children who sit under the teaching of the Word of God and not a syllable of it touches them. They think they're too smart. They think they're, it doesn't apply to them. Whatever it is they think, they are sure they have a better plan. And as soon as they can leave their parents, they go on to destroy their lives because because all this time they've been buying the delusions of the world and the delusions of the devil that that we're capable. We don't need God. We don't need God's Word. We are our own best judges, and we're our own best leaders. And off they go. Don't think that children are not uh, of interest to Satan. And this is why God charges parents to uh, teach their children, to fill their own minds and hearts with Scripture and teach their children Scripture from the youngest age. Paul says to Timothy that you have known the sacred writings since you were an infant. So from his mother's breast, basically, he got the milk of the word and grew up with that to guide him and to guard him. So there's a complication. The complication is he's brought this boy to the right place, but the right men weren't able to do it. They didn't have the power. Now I want you to note, because this is something that ties together these three vignettes, This is something that happens in Jesus' absence. Jesus is not there. They're having to operate on their own, which is what will characterize the age after Jesus' crucifixion and ascension. They will be leading the church without the physical presence of Jesus. So experiences like this are a very important part of their training. And in this very important bit of training, they didn't do well. They didn't succeed in casting out the demon. They lacked the power, verse 16 says, to heal the boy. That's their problem. What's Jesus' solution? Well, in a nutshell, his solution is a rebuke, a command, and a commanding rebuke. <laughs> so a rebuke, a command, and a commanding rebuke. First, the rebuke. And in answer, verse 17, Jesus said, Oh, generation, faithless and perverse And that word faithless could also be translated unbelieving. Same word, apistos, faithless, unbelieving. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. So first we have the rebuke in verse 17a. And isn't it striking just as we started, did any of you think this? Did you notice this? We just looked at a psalm, Psalm 94, where the psalmist twice asks what at the start of the psalm. How long? How long? He's wondering how long it will take God to judge the wicked. And here we have the Lord Jesus twice saying, How long? How long? But his exasperation is with the persistent, pernicious unbelief of people who should know better. How long, he says. Well, you know, every time I've read this, I've wondered... Who is he rebuking here? (laughs) I mean, who is he rebuking? Is he rebuking the Father? Is he rebuking his disciples? Is he rebuking the generation? Who is he exasperated with? Is it the Father... That's the last person he was speaking with. However, it's important to note that the words here are plural. I note that for you just so that you don't miss this. Generation is is singular. But uh, when he says, how long will I be with you and bear with you, that, that pronoun is plural. And when he says, bring him, that verb is plural. So he's not just talking to the Father. He's talking to more than one person. So who could this be? Well, the people he's talking to lack faith and they are perverse. They're, they're off course. They're not what they should be. They've diverted from the right path. So who does that describe? Does it describe the Father? Well, it does. If you remember from Mark's Gospel in chapter 9, what does he say to Jesus? If you can do anything, help him. And what does Jesus say? He says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And how does the Father respond? I do believe, but help my unbelief. So, is he part of an unbelieving generation? Well, in his own words, yeah, he does have that, that characteristic. How about the disciples? Well, when they ask him, why couldn't we do this? What's his answer? It's your little faith. So they're guilty of this sort of thing. What about the crowd, though? Well, Mark tells us that that crowd includes scribes. And could you say that the scribes are guilty of unbelief? Well, yes, you you definitely have to. So my conclusion is, is I'll say it as simply as I can, he is rebuking that generation. That's why I mentioned that to you and gave you verses. I hope you wrote down uh, about how often he has targeted that generation. So he's rebuking that generation, But that generation has affected the Father and even affected His disciples. I think there are corollaries of this, but primarily His focus is, is the crowd. It's that generation, and here's a Father who's like them, and here's even His own disciples who He's taught and led and shown Himself who on this occasion are showing the same lack of faith. So the lesson I think we should take from that is, tell me if you think this is a safe conclusion God really, really isn't okay with unbelief. What do you think? Is that warranted by the text? But I think that's something that we don't think of enough because we really, really are okay with unbelief. We think unbelief is is normal. In fact, I've known theologians and and people who put themselves up as authorities who say it's healthy to doubt. I'd like to see one verse that says it's healthy to doubt. Let me ask you, is it healthy to sin? Oh, you say, no, that's that's a stupid question. Of course it's not healthy. Is it, well, is God okay with us sinning? You say, well, that's another stupid question. Of course it's not okay. So is God okay with us not believing? Oh, <laughs> same thing, huh? Well, from God's perspective, it is. And you find that Jesus is, is racked by uh, people's unbelief. You find angels are just nonplussed by it. They don't understand it. And so I, I think if we were to dialogue with with Jesus or angels and say, well, of course you understand, well, we can't really believe God wholly, they would say no. I mean, yes, because I know everything, but no, I'm not, not understanding in the sense that it's okay. Not understanding in the sense that it's healthy. Not understanding in the sense even that it's rational. And so God really, really isn't okay with unbelief. And let me say before I, I move on that that. In responding to this, there, there's uh, three responses and um, they could be terrible. One response is to ignore what I'm saying. That's a terrible response. Another is to be racked with guilt and say, oh, I'm defeated. I durst not take a step because I'm an unbeliever. Now that's the wrong response too. So what's a healthy response? A healthy response is to say, oh, I see this is very important. I see that my faith is not as healthy as, as it should be. I will seek God. And keep that in constant attention. I will make that a priority to continue to grow in my faith and to keep coming back to this, that I might keep growing. You'll understand this even better as we go along, Lord, with me. So, go, go along, Lord, willing. So stay with me. It's the words I just ran all together. So, uh, a rebuke, then, then a command: Bring the child to me, Jesus says. Got to tell you, that's always the right thing to do. (laughs) That is just always the right answer. As a younger father, I I would sometimes come up with more complicated counsel for my kids. And as I grew, uh, I mostly came back to just that. Just constantly pointing them to Jesus. Just pointing them to Jesus about everything. Yes, there are specifics, but always the point is, come to Jesus. And the the most important thing a parent can do is not to teach a skill and not to teach manners, though those certainly have their place. The most important thing a a parent can do is to, to point his children to Christ to teach them about Christ, to urge them to Christ, constantly to bring up to them their need of Christ, of love for Christ, of ardor for Christ. This is, this is something that they never will outgrow and that we need to start right from the start in doing. And so Jesus says, bring the child to me. They bring the child to Jesus. And we see a rebuke, a command, and now a commanding rebuke in verse 18. And Jesus rebuked it. Luke specifically says he rebuked the spirit and the demon went out from him and the child was healed from that moment. You don't read of Jesus that he didn't have the power to do this or that. What was impossible for the disciples for Jesus was a matter of saying something. Impossible for the nine, really just another day for Jesus because he definitely had the power. A rebuke, a command, a commanding rebuke. Now, we've seen it from the outside. Let's get under the hood and look at the internal reality in verses 19 through 20. And what was their problem? And when we see their problem, we're also going to see our problem. Then the disciples came up to Jesus privately and said for what reason were we not able to cast it out? Now there's that word again, dunami. It means to have, we didn't have the power, we didn't have the ability. Why didn't we have the power to cast it out? Why was it not possible for us to cast it out? And he says to them, on account of your oligopistion, the littleness of your faith, your your the paucity of your faith, your sparse faith. So First, I'd just like to say they handled it rightly. They did the right thing. They came up to Jesus, and they came up to Him in the right spirit. They didn't just um, dig in and carry on. That's what most people do when they do the wrong thing. They, they just double down and keep doing it harder. You know, the same thing. Not, not humbling themselves, not accepting correction, certainly not seeking correction. But, but they do. They do. They realize that they failed. They realize Jesus is the one with the answer. And they come to Jesus. They don't come to Jesus saying, we did everything right. What happened? They don't say, we did everything right. Why didn't God come through? Why wasn't God there? Why didn't God show up? They said, why weren't we able? That's the right question. And they asked the right person. And they had the right spirit. They're not blame shifting. What, what, what did... Um, You know, what did Matthew do wrong to keep us from doing this? I'll I'll bet it was, you know, I'll bet it was this guy, that guy. I bet it was the other thing. No, why weren't we able to do this? They asked Jesus. How would that apply to us? How would we do that? Well, you say pray. And yes, absolutely. I think that's a very good thing. Pray, pray, pray about it. Absolutely. But do you want an answer to your prayer? Oh, an answer to my prayer. What is praying? It's me talking to God. Okay, well, that's good. I've posed the question. Do I want the answer? How am I going to find the answer? Jesus isn't standing here speaking fresh words to me. Where will I find the words of Jesus to teach and correct me? In Scripture and in Scripture alone. In Scripture and in Scripture alone. 2 Timothy 3.17 says Scripture has the effect that the man of God will be fully equipped for every good work. So it needs to be our conviction that the answer we need lies in Scripture. We pray for God to open our eyes. We pray for God to give us humility. We pray for God to give us guidance and openness to His Word and help us understand it. But we have got to go to the Word. If we don't do that, we're not doing this. We're just going on, doing the same thing over and over again, wondering why nothing ever changes. But but we must go to God and ask and we must get into His Word and that's what we have pastors for and, and people who give us biblical counsel to help us understand what the Word says and see the things everyone One of us needs this from time to time. Scripture says you need the guidance of the office of elder, and and we all need people to point out to us things that we don't see in Scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.17 I cited. Hebrews 13.17. God gives us those people in our lives to help us. And I can easily imagine, because I know modern Christianity, somebody saying, well, but the Bible doesn't have everything I need. I need more than that. And I just would say as clearly and simply as I can, if that is your attitude, That is unbelief, which is the problem. God says he's given us everything we need in Scripture, and we say, not enough for me. What is that? That's unbelief. God has said something. I don't believe it. God has told me what I need. I don't believe it's what I need. God has told me what the Bible is and is for me. I don't believe that it's all that for me. That's just unbelief. It's not holy. It's not more spiritual. It's not being a deeper disciple or walking in the Spirit. It's walking in unbelief. I just want to be as pastorally clear as I can. That's what they did. They went to the Word of God. We need to do that same thing. This is the Word of God. Amen? So that's their problem and our application of it. Jesus' solution is in verse 20b. He answers them and says, on account of the littleness of your faith, he says, that's the problem. For amen, I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move on from here to there, and it will move on and nothing will be impossible to you. So let's, let's interpret these words. First of all, he says the reason you couldn't do it is because of the littleness of your faith. He doesn't say they have no faith, but he says it's too little. It was, there was too little of it in this situation. He's talking about that situation. The problem for them was the littleness of their faith, not God's unwillingness, God, Not certainly not God's inability, but the littleness of their faith. So, he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, well, what is that? We've seen in the past, that's proverbial. That's proverbial for something very, very small. You just say something as small as a mustard seed because there's a little tiny bitty thing, just a fraction of the size of a grain of rice, a tiny little bitty thing. So you just have to have a tiny little bitty bit of faith, he says. And the implication is, is what, though? They didn't even have that in this situation. They didn't even have a tiny little grain of faith in this situation. We'll talk about that more in a second, Lord willing. So that's what that means. What about this mountain? And you'll hear b- false teachers all the time bring this verse up to try to get people to be spiritual superheroes and Christian superheroes, going out and doing great and wonderful things that have nothing to do with holiness and righteousness and knowing God. But this is, this is the verse they use. Faith moves mountains. What has never happened in all of history or in all of Scripture? A literal moving of a mountain. So is this a literal promise? No, again, it's a very familiar proverb. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the rabbis. Moving a mountain means doing something impossible. Ah, oh, you see, now that now you see that fits in perfectly, don't you? If you just have the tiniest bit of faith, the biggest thing is going to be possible to you. And that's, in fact, what he goes on to say, isn't it? He says exactly that. And nothing will be impossible to you. So a little tiny bit of faith will have immense power. Well, will, pardon me, I, I, let me rephrase that. A tiny little bit of faith can be the means of something terrific happening. And you know people who quote that as if they meant it literally, and yet they never ever do. Like, like people who say uh, their, their model of finding God's will is Gideon and his fleece, which just, spoiler alert, that is not how to find God's will. But, but one thing that everyone has in common who teaches that that is a good model of finding God's will, all of them have this in common. None of them says to use a fleece. None of them says literally lay out a fleece. It's something else. So that's kind of a, that's absolutely no extra charge for that. You're welcome. So um, that's the interpretation of this. And Jesus then scores the littleness of their faith. Now here, I really want to do uh, our best to understand what faith is in the Bible. What it is and what it isn't. And, And let me, and listen to me closely. This is so important because there's so much false teaching on this and so much mistaken thinking. First, let me tell you, and this is critical, faith is not how we get God to conform to our will. And I encourage you to write that down word for word. Faith is not how we get God to conform to our will. And yet you'll hear teacher after teacher saying that's exactly what it is. They won't use those words, but that's exactly what they're getting people to do. To make God do, and what is that? Well, that's magic. And Christianity is not magic. What is magic? That you can manipulate forces by using the right words or the right gestures or the right rituals. That is not biblical Christianity. And that's not what faith is. Faith is not how we conform God to our will. And let me say something else. Faith is not a mighty power. Faith is not the power by which we get things done as if faith itself has power in it, by itself. And so what we need to do is work up enough faith, and if we work up enough faith then we can get done what we've done. Uh, So let me just add here, the so-called faith healers, all of them frauds and phonies, who say they have the power of healing like in the Bible, and not one of them has ever exercised such a gift. When they are unable to heal somebody, somebody's not healed, what do they commonly say the problem was? Lack of whose faith? The sick person's faith. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying the boy didn't have enough faith? He's saying they didn't have enough faith. But I don't think you'll see many faith tealers say that. I couldn't hire that guy because I didn't have, I have enough faith. I couldn't, I couldn't heal him. I didn't have enough faith. You no, know, they don't say that. It's the person's fault. So faith is not how we conform God to our will. Faith is not a mighty power. So what is faith? Faith is how I conform to God's will. That's what faith is. Faith is me submitting to God's will expressed in His Word. I, I have taught you this over and over again, and I will as long as I'm here, that faith is about the Word of God. Faith is, has to do with the Word of God. It is dealing with the Word of God, with His promises, His teaching, His statements, His warnings. That's what faith is about. Faith is about our response to God's Word. And what faith is, well everybody responds to God's word right do you understand that everyone responds to God's word a person who ignores it is responding a person who rejects it is responding but what is faith faith is understanding it it's seeing it is true and it's submitting to it those are the elements we've often looked at about faith understanding it seeing it's true and submitting to it that's what faith is and so faith is how we conform to god's will and when power is exerted it is entirely of god we have submitted to god's will and god does what he does by his mighty power faith is an act of submission not of exertion or manipulation very important it is an act of submission So here you say, well, what is the word in question that they didn't believe? I'm so glad you asked. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 with me. Hey, that's the first book in your New Testament. That makes it very easy to find. Matthew in chapter 10 and verse 1. What do we read here? And summoning his 12 disciples, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And he tells them, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. What's the next? Cast out demons. Freely receive, freely give. And you say, well, is that an object of faith? Is a command an object of faith? Yes, it is. Promises, commands, statements, warnings, they're all words from God, and they all call for faith. This is Jesus' word to them. They were to, he gave them the authority and power. He told them he gave them the authority of power, and he told them to do it, and they didn't do it. So why didn't they do it? It was because of lack of faith. Okay, now maybe you see that, but you've still got some questions. And that's what I hope to look to next. We've seen the interpretation. Now let's look to the instruction for our own application. And here it is, and, and I, I try not to say this constantly, but I kind of feel this about the whole sermon. This is very, very important. <laughs> but it is really very, very important. One of the things we learn about faith here is faith must be vital, living, Constant. It cannot be formal, static, and dead. Again, faith must be vital, living, and constant. It can't be static and formal and dead. It's not a matter just of going through the motions, even the correct motions. The Latin expression for that thought is ex operato, and it's something you see in the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that if you do the right things, you have the right results. And so communion, well, I mean baptism. What possible meaning can baptism have to a child? What does that child know about what's being done to him? And the answer is not one thing. But the Catholics say that if you do it the right way, well, then it washes away his original sin. It has effects just by doing it, even though the child has no faith. That's ex operato, and that's not biblical faith. Faith is constant, living, vital. It is not dead, formal, static. So I'm saying that that is what happened here, that they did the right thing, but they didn't exercise faith in doing it. Perhaps they were distracted by the scribes that Mark tells us were arguing with them. Perhaps they were distracted by the, the ferocity of this demon who was a ferocious demon. Something got their eyes off the prize, and they went through the right gestures. They perhaps did what they'd always done, perhaps said what they'd always said, and yet it had no effect. Why did it have no effect? Because they were not exercising faith. You say, oh, how do you know that? Well... Because Jesus said it. <laughs> that's how I know it. I cheated, you know. I read, I read the Bible. And that's how I know. The problem was their lack of faith. You say, I still, I don't see it. I think I have a perfect illustration for you. I think I do. Immensely helpful to me. Uh, I pray it is for you. Look at Matthew 14. And you'll see a very strong parallel. It's just so very helpful uh, to me to hit on this. This is a puzzling story. It is a challenging story. So turn to Matthew 14, and we'll look at verse, uh, we'll start with verse 22. Jesus sends them out, the disciples out in a boat to go across the sea, and they start off, and they get, ha- they get partway across, and they're battered by waves, terrible windstorm, and Jesus comes up to them walking on the sea, and they're terrified, and he identifies himself. Now, here we come to what I want us to focus on. He says, it is I, do not be afraid, verse 27. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, bluff called. He says, come. Now, does Peter have a command from God? Not a trick question. I don't ask trick questions. I warn you if I do. Did he have a command from God? Did he have a word from God? Was that word to be an object of his faith? Yes, these are, not, I, these are not hard questions. Don't suspect me. Don't suspect me. And so if he believed that, would he do something? Yes, he did. Well, let's read, see if he did. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came towards Jesus. He started to come towards Jesus. So obviously he had enough faith to obey and he walked on the water. Now, was his walking on water, did he have the power to do that natively? No, of course not. Was that a possible thing normally? Not at all. Yet, did he do it? Why did he do it? Did he do it because he, because he worked up the power to do it? Whose power kept him from sinking? That would be Jesus' power. How did that power work in Peter's life? Through faith. Oh, but the story's not over, is it? Because he starts walking on the water. Because he's believing in Jesus. But read on. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Why did he start to sink? Because the storm got too strong to keep him floating? Well, again, I cheated. I read the whole thing. And the answer is in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? So you see, he had a word from Jesus. He began acting on that word in faith. Still walking on the water, still going through the gestures, he shifted his, his, his repose, if you will, his, what he's leaning on, shifted it from Jesus to contingency, to chance, to natural law, looking at the wind, looking at the waves, no longer trusting in Jesus, looking at these things, And he began to sink. Why? Because he was not exercising faith in Jesus. Because he was not exercising, you might say, living, vital, constant faith in Jesus. So what do you see here then in this situation? You see they have been casting out demons, but they get one. And for some reason... They're not exercising their faith in this situation. As I say, distracted by the scribes, distracted by the crowd, distracted by the ferocity of the demon, I don't know, but whatever it is, they found themselves unable to do what they had been able to do. The only reason they had been able to do it is because of their faith in Jesus' word. And now they've stopped doing that in this situation. And Jesus reproaches them for it. And there are many, many applications of that. I mean, I think of John 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Well, what does he mean by abide in me? He means stay in me and don't leave me. But just that. Do we not receive Jesus' life and bear fruit as we stay in him, trusting him, looking to him, calling on him, meditating on him, eating and drinking of his body and blood, communing with him. Indeed so. Think about communion. Why don't we just go through the gestures every month? Why every month do I give a a meditation from a different angle on what we're about to do? Why do I do that? To excite you and me to exercise living faith in what we're about to do. And remember the significance and exercise faith so that it's not an empty, meaningless gesture but it's an act of worship. So how do we apply this then to us? This is not, faith is not about trying to become superheroes and doing things that uh, uh, serve us or amuse us. It's about Christian living. It's about loving your spouse. God calls you to do that. Can you do it? Sometimes it seems impossible. So go to Jesus and look to Jesus and believe God's word. Uh, respecting your parents, uh, working hard at your job, on and on. That's what this is about. And, and the, the false teachers, they don't teach a lot about daily Christian living and holiness and sanctification, serving at church, as Chad talked about, doing ministries. Or heck, if you've been coming here for years and years, becoming a member so that you can serve. They don't talk about these things. We, we get stuck in our ruts, we, we get afraid, uh, we get um, distracted, but God calls us to exercise ongoing, living, vital faith. Break out of our ruts and do things for Him, for His glory, according to what His Word teaches. Well, there's the first story. Two more to go. Uh, They're briefer. But the first shows us the need for living, vital, continuous faith in Christ's absence. I bring you back to that. This is what they were doing when Christ wasn't there to be seen. And that is a very important lesson to us. Secondly, the need for knowledge. This is briefer, verses 22 and 23 the need for knowledge. And we see first revelation in verses 22 and 23a, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered over or betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. Well, you say this happened before, didn't it? Yes. In chapter 16, do you remember what happened? What happened in chapter 16? Peter just confessed Jesus as Messiah and the divine son. Jesus said he was about to die. And uh, what was the response? Peter rebuked him. No, no. God spare you. This will never happen to you. And Jesus called him Satan and corrected him and told him to get back behind him. Well, here the response is different. We'll get there in a second. But so this is not the first time this is another time, but he's added something this time they didn't mention before. Did you notice that? What's new here? He says that he's going to be betrayed. He hadn't mentioned that before. Now he mentions he's going to be handed over. He's going to be betrayed. That's a new element. In fact, each time he mentions it, he seems to mention a new, a new element. A, a, a big difference, though, between this, the former one and this one besides that is in chapter 16, he says it is necessary... For the Son of Man to go and suffer. Here he says, "I am about to." The Son of Man is about to be delivered. They will kill him. They will be raised. He will be raised. So, what's the difference? The first stressed the necessity of his death. What does this stress? The certainty of his death. This is going to happen. The first says, "This must happen." This one says, "This is going to happen." Uh, so. I mean, put it in your calendar. This is what's coming up. So again, the theme of his absence, right? This first test was in his absence. Now he reminds him he's about to be absent. Now you know he will die, he'll rise again, but you know that after he rises, then what happens? Weeks later, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So their leadership of the church will be in his absence. So there's that theme again, that, that note But this is important for their faith because as he says in in the Gospel of John, I'm telling you these things before they happen so that when they happen, you can believe. You can believe. When, When he is betrayed and crucified, they have the choice of saying, well, I guess this must have taken Jesus by surprise and he must not be worthy of our faith. But instead, what they need to say is, Jesus said this is exactly what was going to happen. And it strengthens our faith. It's a miserable, horrible thing. But he did say it's going to happen. That's revelation. And it is greeted, verse 23, by resignation. Resignation. R-E-S-I-G-N. R-E-S-I-G-N. Resignation. They were terribly saddened. What do you say to that? Well, first you probably say, it's hard to blame them. You know, you wouldn't expect him to throw confetti in the air right at that announcement. That's not a happy announcement. But is it, is it in advance, might you say? Well, nobody rebukes him. <laughs> nobody tells him he's wrong. Nobody tells him it's not going to happen. So, you know, like we say in my family, progress is progress. If it's a mile, that's great. If it's a millimeter, it's still progress. And this is progress. They don't, they don't tell him he's wrong. In fact, they believe him enough to be saddened by it. To be not just saddened, but terribly saddened. Well, that's not hard to understand, you know. It's really hard to understand something that you don't want to understand. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think we all do. It's really hard to get our hands around something that we don't really want to understand in the first place. It's not welcome truth. It's not happy truth. This is not welcome truth. This is not happy truth, but Jesus will keep telling them because they need to see it coming. you fast forward ahead and it still seems to blindside them, but not for want of his telling them that it would happen. And that would be a matter of faith too. They should exercise faith in what he's saying now, and they should exercise faith when it comes to be. So, Our need for knowledge is supplied by God's word. To exercise faith we need knowledge. You can't believe what you don't understand. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the joke of the guy who keeps baptizing the same guy over and over and every time he plunges him under, he brings him back and says, do you believe? And he doesn't answer, he plunges him under again. Do you believe? And he keeps doing it. And about the fifth time he says, do you believe? And the man says, yeah, I believe. I believe you're trying to kill me. Well, of course the question is, what are we called to believe? It's important that we believe, but You cannot believe savingly, you cannot believe properly without knowing what. And that's why we're taught and told the Word of God. And that's what Jesus gives them here. He gives them revelation, He tells them so that they might know. And they greet it with resignation. It's progress, it's progress, but lots of miles to go. Secondly, we see our need for, I'm sorry, thirdly, we see our need for discernment. We see the need for living faith in Christ's absence. We see the need for uh, belief in God's will and knowledge in Christ's absence. Thirdly, we see our need for discernment in verses 24 through 27. And the first part of this third story is Peter and his taxers. Peter and his taxers, T-A-X-E-R-S. And when they came into Capernaum, those who take the double drachma tax... Came up to Peter and said, your teacher, does he not pay the double drachma tax? He says, yes. Well, what are we talking about here? We're talking about an annual temple tax. This is a temple tax that's taken every year. So where are they? They've come back to Capernaum. What's that? That's their home base. That's Peter's and um, Jesus'. Home base, several of them. That's their home base, and so the tax collectors are waiting for them now. And well, there are many interesting things about this story. One of the interesting things about this story is that Matthew is the only one who tells this story. Why do you think that this story might be of particular interest to Matthew? Tax collector. Tax collector. That's right. It's not in the other three Gospels. Matthew tells the story. And he took tax for Rome. These are taking tax for the temple. Uh, What is this tax? Well, it's a redemption tax. Well, the root of it is in a redemption tax that was mandated in the Old Testament, Exodus 30, at that time. But this is, this is perhaps based on that, but this is not that. This is something that is a traditional development from that. And this, obviously, the tabernacle is not around anymore, but the temple is, and they take these, and, and, and these offerings were a large part of the money for the temple's upkeep. So they were taken um, every year, uh, double drachma. A drachma is about a days of wage. So this is two days wages, this annual tax for every man. Um, So if, you know, supposing you work eight hours and you're paid uh, $10 an hour just to get easy math. Uh, So you're paid um, $80 $80 a day. So this is $160 if that's the case. But it's the equivalent of two days uh, wages. And not everybody uh, acquiesced to it. Uh, the Sadducees uh, rejected it because they thought it was just one of these Pharisaic traditional inventions. Uh, the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls people, uh, they would pay it once a lifetime, and that's it. Not every year. So this wasn't a dumb question. It wasn't even necessarily a baiting question. No pun intended, given the whole story. Uh, but uh, they, Jesus not teaching what everybody else taught, it's a, it's a valid question to say, well, does he pay this tax or not? And again, what do you notice that connects this with the other two? Jesus is absent. He's absent for the nine. In the middle one, he talks about how he's about to be absent by death. And now, here, he's absent when Peter is asked this question. So Peter answers, and he answers hastily. He answers hastily. Uh, He says yes. Spurgeon believes that in Peter's haste, he compromised Jesus by speaking for Jesus when he should have asked Jesus and gotten his mind before he spoke to him. Interesting that they ask Peter about what Jesus does, but they must see Peter as a leader of the disciples under Jesus, I take it. But um, when Peter gives this answer, he kind of commits Jesus to this practice. And follow me here. By implication, he commits him to the rationale. I mean, if he says, well, yeah, Jesus pays this, then the assumption is, well, Jesus pays this for the same reason that everybody else pays it. And so he has erred here in all likelihood by speaking too quickly. And so we turn from Peter and his taxers to Peter and his teacher in verses 25b through 27. And when he, that is Peter, came into the house, Jesus anticipated him. Uh, that little verb, proefasen means he, he, he got there before him. He intercepted him. <laughs> he, so this is interesting. The implication, the clear implication is Jesus knew about this conversation even though he wasn't there. So you see a number of divine uh, uh, exercises by Jesus in this little story. But Jesus knew what they were talking about and doesn't even wait for Peter to ask him. He broaches the subject to Peter. He anticipated him, saying, what does it seem like to you, Simon? I know, I, I pause at that. The Son of God says, what do you think? What a weird place to be in my answer would be it doesn't matter what I think I mean what do you think tell me tell me what you think then I'll know what to think but to have the son of God say what do you think about this Peter boy that's got to kind of make your heart beat a little faster and put a little more adrenaline in your blood wouldn't you think what does it seem to you Simon he may be thinking is this going to be a trick question because Jesus does ask trick questions for for instructive purposes what does it seem like to you, Simon? The kings of the earth. Oh, there's an expression meaning Gentile kings. The kings of the earth. That, that expression occurs a few times in the Bible. Gentile kings, pagan kings. From whom do they take taxes or poll tax? Uh, Greek word kensis. We get census from that. From their sons or from others? Now, I wouldn't say aliens or foreigners or even strangers. The, the division is between the family of the ruler, and anyone else. That's what what Jesus is talking about. So do they take taxes from their sons or from people who aren't their sons? Everyone else. Everyone else. Do they take taxes from everyone else? And when he, Peter, said from others, Jesus said to to him, well then, the sons are free. So if you're a son, you don't owe a tax because the ruler doesn't tax his sons. Peter's starting to think here, Uh uh-oh, I may have answered a little bit too quickly. Maybe I didn't think this through like I, like I should have. Isn't it, This is something Jesus does often, by the way. He teaches by asking questions. I, I commend that to you. It often is a good thing. Often when I've spoken, I've, I've thought it would have been better probably to start with a question, see if I can get the person thinking without announcing what I want to say, but see if I can get the wheels turning first. And Jesus very often does that, whether in teaching or in witnessing. And so he asks him to get him thinking. And, and Peter answers correctly, but this is not something that he had thought through when he gave his answer. Well then, Jesus says, the sons are free. But then kind of a surprise ending. But in order that we might not trip them up, scandalize them, we might not make them stumble, go into the sea and cast a hook, and the first fish that comes up, take. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. A stator is worth worth, Four, uh, two didrachmas, four denarii, so enough to pay for both of them. You'll find a stater. Take that stator and give it to them for me and you. So he first gets into the principle here, do rulers, does the king tax his sons? And the answer is no. So there's perhaps two reasons why Jesus, this tax is not something Jesus should be bound to pay. He is the son of God. And when he gets to the temple, what does he call it? My father's house. My father's house. And so would the king tax him for his house? No. He should not be obliged to pay this. And he's encouraged his disciples to think of themselves as sons of God too. Sons by adoption, but still there to pray our father who is in heaven. So... Him, first of all, his followers by implication, they're free. They should not be obliged. Okay, you lift your eyes from the page then. You say, well then, we don't pay the tax. But isn't it interesting? That's not where Jesus ends up. He doesn't, but however, he has made the point, don't do it because we're obliged, but do it because this is not the the fight to pick. Not everything is a fight worth having. Not every hill is a hill to die on. Young people find this very hard to, to uh, learn, and old crabby people find this very hard to learn, uh, that not every hell is worth dying on. Not every, not every fight is worth fighting to the last drop of blood's been shed. And this is one that he says is not worth. Just make I'm sure that you and I understand that we're not obliged in this case to do this. But do, don't do it out of obligation. Do it because this is not the fight to have. And you know Jesus was not unwilling to have fights. He had them, he will have them. This is not one that's worth it, he says. So this is the need for discernment. Roman numeral three, our need for discernment. This is what he's teaching. Think it through. Take the principles of the word of God and think it through and pick your fights. Not everything is worth having a fight. So here's a real interesting way that this, this little vignette, three stories, ends up. Little faith means little power, right? Much faith makes the impossible possible. Faith is submission to God's Word. Jesus sends Peter to do something impossible. How is it impossible? Well, think about it. He's not fishing with a net. That's what he usually does. Nets bring in lots of fish. This is unusual. I think it's the, Yes, it's the only time in the New Testament that a hook is mentioned. How many fish do you catch with one hook? One fish. So out of the whole Sea of Galilee, just one fish. But here's an interesting thing about this fish. He's got to catch exactly the right fish. But, but here's something interesting. Where is the stator going to be? Does he say "Cling it and you'll find a stator in its gut? It's clean your mouth. So when did that fish probably pick up that stator? Right before Peter threw in the hook. But now he doesn't have the stator in his mouth. Jesus is talking about something that hasn't even happened yet of which there is, I mean, mathematically, there's, there's just really no possibility of this happening. But he is to throw his hook into the lake, and the first fish he catches, he says, open the mouth. Now, why, why does he say open the mouth? Probably, I mean, I'm just guessing here, it could have been a tilapia, but it could also well have been a catfish, because catfish have big mouths, big enough mouths so that he might have taken in a stater and not swallowed it yet before he also gobbles up Peter's hook. But, but what is characteristic of a catfish to a Jew? It's unclean. So what would a Jewish fisherman do if he caught a catfish? Throw it back in. He wouldn't look in the mouth. So Jesus says, look in its mouth. And he's not catching the fish for the fish. He's catching the fish for the stater. Now, wouldn't you agree that this is pretty much impossible? I mean, seriously. This is, for all intents and purposes, Impossible. But but Peter does this impossible thing. Why does he do it? By faith. How does he have faith? Jesus' word. Jesus tells him to do something. Now he could have said, well, I think that that is unlikely to happen. I've fished my whole life. Never has that happened. But he has a word from Jesus. So he believes it. Now, listen, if he had not believed it, then he wouldn't go out and nothing impossible would happen to Peter. But he believes Jesus' word And in obedience, he goes out and does what Jesus does. And of course, we're left to believe that this is exactly what happened. Why did it happen? Why did this impossible thing happen? By Peter's power? No. By the power of Peter's faith? No. By Jesus. And Peter experienced it because he believed in Jesus. Because he believed in his word and he obeyed his word. And and this is a very important thing to learn. If If you can learn one more important thing, Faith is the mother of obedience. When someone, doesn't disobey, when someone doesn't obey, it's because he doesn't believe. You see the people all over the place saying they're Christians and all over the place on homosexuality and abortion and all these things. You say, wow, they're really disobedient. Yes, they are. The reason why they're disobedient is they're, they're unbelievers. They, they don't believe God's word. They don't believe. Belief is submission. Peter submits to God's word. And you see how it comes full circle. Why couldn't they cast out the demons? They didn't exercise faith. Why did Peter find a stater in a catfish mouth? Maybe a catfish? Because he believed in Jesus. And Jesus did the impossible. And Peter experienced the impossible because he believed and he obeyed. So, in Jesus' absence then, the disciples must think by God's Word. They must use discernment for the right course of action in, in picking the right battles. And they must obey out of faith. So, to wrap it all together, we, we continue to see a pattern for the disciples. What, what do we see happening over and over again? Jesus teaches. They learn something. They're tested. And they stumble. They mess it up. And then Jesus teaches them. And they learn And they're tested, and they stumble. And this is the path of discipleship. This simply is the path of discipleship. This will be the pattern of our discipleship. And if we're seeing that in our lives, we should not be discouraged. We should just say we're right on track. Because what happens is the Lord teaches us through His Word. We learn. We're tested. We mess up. We go back to Him. He teaches us some more. We learn some more. We're tested. We mess up. But the path goes on forward and upward. Uh, Jesus will not have us rest and come to a stop. Jesus wants us and our faith to grow. And the only way that happens is by more teaching and, sorry, more testing. Which means usually, sorry, more stumbling. But that leads to more teaching, more testing. And that's what growth is. That simply is what growth is. If you're in trials, don't panic. You're right on schedule. If things are hard in your life and things have come your way that have been hard, don't panic. You're right on schedule. This is the school of discipleship. It's a good school. It's got a great textbook. And the graduation ceremony is amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you for how it teaches and leads us. I pray that the the Holy Spirit, by his blessed office, will apply this word in individual and personal ways in helping all of us to advance in our life, to break out of old molds and fears and move ahead in our service of you. And those who do not yet know you, we pray that they will see the wonder and lordship of Jesus and will submit in faith to the word of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.